the occasion that has brought us together, of course, this Lord's Day afternoon is another opportunity to extend worship to the very God for whom such is, of course, a very deserving thing. In Psalm 89, verse 52, we read, Blessed be the name of the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. And even as we echo those same thoughts and sentiments this afternoon, we've come to that portion of our service in which we allow God to speak to us through His Word and that we may be challenged and encouraged by a study and an interesting one at that. For indeed, tonight we come, as you noticed in the reading, to the opening chapter of Colossians. Perhaps a few words of introduction would be in order as we contemplate not only this lesson, but those that shall follow it in the series that we shall begin this evening. In fact, by way of introduction, we noticed, in fact, in the year 2007, that we entered into a 26-week study of the book of Revelation on for, from the opening part of June until, in fact, the third Sunday in, in December. And inasmuch as that series was received, it would seem, in a very well fashion, we shall begin another series of lessons this evening by looking to the book of Colossians. As you might well appreciate, this, this series is covering a book that's substantially shorter. Uh, Colossians will, in fact, only entail some four chapters, but as we involve ourselves in that series, it would be hoped that it might be as beneficial to us, for we have opportunity to look somewhat extensively at this four-chapter book and to look at it in, in a sequential fashion beginning from the opening verse all the way to, to the concluding one. With some of those ideas noted, we shall appreciate that we shall cover at least a part of chapter 1 this evening and continue on from there in each of the Sunday evenings from the beginning today and study from time to time this, this book of Colossians. At the closing part of that slide, I ask you to note somewhat briefly some of the major ideas that could be stated about it. And in fact, as we think about the various books in the New Testament or even the Bible at large, some of those thoughts are some of the easiest ones I hopefully to remember. This book only has four chapters. In fact, only 95 verses in total. It takes a very short time, in fact, to read the entirety of the book of Colossians. Also to be listed are some other features, not the least of which, is that upon reading Colossians, it's not difficult to understand that there's a remarkable similarity between this book and the Ephesian letter. In fact, upon reading it, you notice that in many ways the same themes are discussed in order in Ephesians as well as Colossians. We'll see some reasons for that a bit later in our study. No doubt, some of the grandest themes are presented in this book as certainly are echoed in others. But if we had to choose the principal major theme set forth in the Colossian letter, it would be this. Just as surely as the book of Ephesians centers on the church of Christ, the book of Colossians centers on the Christ of the church. Jesus is lifted up in preeminent fashion and set forth as the absolute zenith and pinnacle of all matters related to Christianity. Paul over and over again highlights Christ, what he accomplished for humanity, the sanctification available through him, and in these four chapters lift him up in noble, remarkable fashion. In fact, time and again, we'll notice some of the greatness that, in which Christ is presented. Very briefly, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 2, verse 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Him. Colossians 2, verse 10, He is the absolute fulfillment of all the Godhead bodily. Those three verses alone lift Jesus to the grandeur and greatness, and sadly, 
the Colossians had failed to appreciate the thoroughness of those ideas, Paul emphasizes them, amplifies them, and teaches such grand things about the nature of the Christ. We shall, of course, do the same as we move through this series of studies as well. Those opening sets of comments perhaps hasten us to consider these as well. We've often found, as we did with the Revelation, that an understanding of a city, the circumstances surrounding the letter, greatly aid us to understand the, and comprehend fully the message as it's revealed. We have not quite as much to say about Colossae as we did the circumstances of the Revelation, but nonetheless, these will be of some benefit to us a bit later in the study. The name of the city of Colossae, situated in the southwestern part of Asia Minor, it was located on a rather notable river at the time, the Lycus River, and in fact, this city was situated in the Lycus River Valley. Interestingly enough, it might be appropriate to briefly consider a map. That map is one that seems to me to rather well illustrate some of the features of it. It would be my hope that, that the writing is large enough for you to see, but if not, let me point out with pointer where the city of Colossae is. This particular element of Asia Minor, and I need to get rid of that now. Here is the city of Colossae. It is this dot situated here very far in the southwest part of Asia Minor. That particular city of Colossae, perhaps for us, is not quite as well familiar as some of the other cities that are listed on that map. For after all, many of the cities of the Revelation, as well as the others that we encounter on Paul's second and third missionary journeys, is listed. Again, Colossae, situated on this particular place. I might ask you to know, while the map is before us, that there were two other more notable cities that were very near to it, one of which is the city of Laodicea. That was, of course, one of the seven churches of Asia, to which Paul, or rather John, addressed the Revelation. And also relatively near was this city of Hierapolis. The reason I make mention of them is, is for the following. Returning back to our previous screen, roughly half a millennium before Paul wrote the book of Colossians, the city of Colossae was a major city in Asia Minor. In fact, it was one of the most significant of the cities. However, in that 500 years since, two other cities had gained a bit more prominence, and Colossae had somewhat fallen from the height of its appreciation. Those other two cities were Hierapolis and Laodicea. In fact, Rome had built some major roads through those other places, and they now had a far greater element of prosperity and also notability than did Colossae. That leads me to make some of the following notes. You and I encounter perhaps a bit about Colossae indirectly when we read through the book of Acts and notice that Paul passed relatively near Colossae on the second missionary journey. It may well have been 150 miles or so distant, but at least the notability of Paul's preaching had come, it would seem, to that area. And if not on the second journey, then almost certainly on the third. From Acts 18, 23, we learn that Paul passed likely within 20 to 25 miles at most of Colossae, although it's relatively clear that he did not actually enter Colossae. 
We know that from Colossians 2, verse 1. For on that particular occasion, Paul directly said to that congregation that they had never seen him face to face. That seems to imply directly that though he had passed near to that city, he had not directly entered it. In stating those two things, one almost immediately wonders, do we have any information about the person who may have been instrumental in beginning that congregation? From Colossians 4, verse 12, as well as Colossians 1, verse 7, the hints that are strongly given seem to suggest that Epaphras actually was the instrumental key in beginning that congregation. Now, he himself was taught by Paul. He himself was so greatly brought to the faith it would seem through him. And thus, when Epaphras planted that congregation, Paul, in fact, took the opportunity to encourage them by virtue of his letter. And perhaps some other thoughts might also be worthy of note. This particular epistle we noted last Sunday evening when we studied that timeline of the New Testament is itself one of the four prison epistles being coupled together with Ephesians, Philippians, as well as Philemon. Paul penned all of them during that period of time described in Acts 28 when he was under house arrest there in the city of Rome awaiting his appearance before Caesar, before the, uh, before the great leader of the Roman Empire. As Paul penned those four letters, that is one of the reasons why this letter seems so similar to the, to the Ephesian one. They were again penned at the same time and addressed some similar features or similar ideas. Perhaps more to the point. There was one distinction in regard to the church in Colossae that seemed a bit different from that at Ephesus. The church in Colossae had become beset, in fact, greatly troubled by various false teachings that had been brought into that area. There seemed to have been two principal ideas set forth by the false teachers, one of which was the necessity of keeping the law of Moses. Time and again in the Colossian letter, Paul will attempt to rebuke or to correct the Colossian brethren as well as those false teachers for believing that the law of Moses was still in effect and thus one needed to subscribe to it. At the same time, one strove to, to subscribe to the New Testament. Certainly that is a serious error. In fact, if, if it could be so described, God never intended the old law of Moses to mesh harmoniously with the new law. That was the schoolmaster to bring one to Christ, Galatians 3.24. It was not intended to complement it. It was not intended to be active and alive and well at the same time as the New Testament. Not only that, another false teaching had to do with sanctification. Perhaps we may be so blunt. How does one stand sanctified before the God of heaven today? Is it by virtue of the work of angels? Is it by virtue of the work of various aesthetic or magical practices? In fact, that was some of the false teaching that had become prevalent due to these false teachers in the area of Colossae. Paul, time and again, but especially in chapter 2, will emphasize that sanctification comes neither by any of those things I just mentioned. He will, in fact, address very powerfully how it does come. We will look at all of that, of course, in time when we arrive at the second chapter. For right now, might we close these thoughts by noting that this book does set forth some marvelous features, not only about the priesthood of Jesus, not only about the sanctification obtained through him, not only about the character of the family with husbands and wives and children, 
not only about matters related to the workplace and how one involves himself with employees or employers. All of that will be mentioned in due time. And in fact, as the book closes, even the marvelous character of that person we know of is Onesimus and Philemon, a link to yet another New Testament book. Without any further ado, let's turn our attention to chapter 1 and begin in verse number 1, and let's read the first two verses and set the stage for introductory material in this book of Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If we pause at that point and at least note some of the opening features of the opening chapter, perhaps some of the following things would be worthy of observation. If we remember that, again, Paul had not seen these brethren face to face, apparently, chapter 2, verse 1, we are reminded, however, that Paul establishes himself as an authority figure and one who is in a position to authoritatively write to them and even rebuke them when necessary, encourage them when necessary. For in verse number 1, he identifies himself as the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. We notice that word apostle means one who is sent. Our Savior had, of course, chosen the twelve that were nearest to him, and they, of course, had been sent by virtue of the Great Commission to preach the gospel to every creature under heaven, Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. However, Paul described himself in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10 as one born out of due season or out of due time. He also here is recognized or called an apostle. We might well remember that God indeed had plans for that man. In Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, on that very occasion when God dispatched Ananias, who was, of course, that faithful brother in the city of Damascus, Paul had just seen that bright vision on the road. On that occasion when Ananias stated hesitancy to go to speak with Paul, for this man was in fact an opponent to Christianity and even imprisoned those that were the faithful servants. However, God said, Go, for he is my chosen vessel to speak not only before the Gentiles and before kings, but also before the house of Israel. And not only that, I must show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. God had plans for this man who at that time was named Saul. He was, in fact, one that would be sent to not only the house of Israel, not only to princes and kings, but also to the Gentiles themselves. In verse number 1, then, as those comments are made, might we notice that Timothy was with him? In fact, as we appreciate the closing of the book of Acts, we see that apparently Timothy had come to be with Paul on that occasion. He had been a companion on a couple of the missionary journeys, namely the second and third ones. But here as the book closes, we see that that young son of his was again with him, that these together address greetings to the church in Colossae. In verse number 2, what a beautiful scene is opened. For there Paul makes note that he writes to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, that city of Colossae. Notice that members in that church were described as faithful brethren as well as saints. Isn't it an eternal tragedy that there is such misunderstanding concerning the word saint? There are those upon earth who will proclaim that one cannot be a saint until voted so by various councils of men. 
such couldn't be further from the truth of God's book. Here we see that faithful brethren in Colossae 20 centuries ago were called saints. They didn't have to be voted upon by some council somewhere, some conference that was located at a particular place. We see that these faithful individuals were recognized by Paul in terms of saints. That word saint simply means sanctified in Christ Jesus. They were sanctified and immediately Paul begins to address one of the concerns that those false teachers had risen. Namely, how is one sanctified? Paul calls these brethren saints. Reminding us of 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 when that church in Corinth had its membership called saints in Corinth. May we understand you and I are saints at the Pippin Church in Putnam County, Tennessee. Saints we are. And how proudly we can be described in that way, for we too are sanctified by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus through the marvelous character of his blood. Notice also with me in verse number 2, that as Paul opens this book, he follows a pattern that occurs in the 12 other books that we know he wrote in the New Testament. It is a fascinating consideration to note the uniformity of the way in which Paul opened the letter that he wrote. All 13 times in the books, again, that we're sure he wrote, he begins it by addressing grace and peace to those to whom he's writing. Grace and peace. The notion of grace and peace is sufficiently interesting because it seems Paul was so greatly in tune with what those words mean. Might we remember Paul was a scholar. He was a learned man, brilliant. Not only that, he had great knowledge of the Old Testament system for he persecuted those in the opening chapters of Acts who, in fact, opposed that system. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, as touching the law, in fact, a Pharisee, who so powerfully is described in Philippians 3, verses 5 through 7. For those descriptions, we read of a man who knew about the grace of God, who knew about the peace that was available through the Christ, and he addressed that wonderfully to these saints located in Colossae. With those statements made, let's read beginning in verse number 3. Let us read through verse number 6. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is coming to you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day you heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. Verse number three, following those introductory thoughts that opened the letter in a rather general way, Paul now makes statements about the attitude that he and Timothy had toward the congregation in Colossae. As we recollect the fact again that Paul did not establish it himself, nonetheless how highly he thought of the brethren in Colossae. Perhaps he thought very highly of this congregation, maybe second only to that congregation in Philippi. Or as we learn in the Philippian letter, perhaps his compliments for it rank even higher than those mentioned here in the Colossian letter. He begins by saying, we give thanks to God. He and Timothy frequently mention the church in Colossae in their prayers, thankful for them, appreciative of them, and expressed a degree of gratitude for their faithfulness and their love and their dedication to the cause of the Master. 
It is entirely proper for us, of course, today to so thoughtfully and kindly remember our sister congregations and those that are enduring particular difficulties and trials and to remember their name before God that they might be strengthened, that they might have a degree of perseverance and endurance. Paul and Timothy remember the Colossian church. Notice also in verse number 3, praying always for you. I mentioned that because in verse 12, which will be the last verse we'll consider in our lesson this evening, Paul there says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. There's that word saints again. Paul again makes note that we're thankful for you, brothers, and so much so that you and us together, note the word us, Paul joins himself with them as a companion in their difficulties and is ever appreciative and thankful that we all are partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. What a wonderful bond Paul shared with these brothers and sisters. And what a touching exposition of that feeling we find in these opening verses. It's true, isn't it, that Paul did not distance himself from them. He sought to draw himself to them and to aid in their consideration of the love and the dedication to the cause of Christ. I asked some questions in the given slide to challenge each of us, as again we're wont to do in our public times of assembly, that we might also think about our sisters and brothers elsewhere in congregations. We, of course, support congregations and have done so in places like India and with Brother Gilbert as he goes to Africa. That's a wonderful word. May we continue to remember them, think about them, support them, not only in a financial way, but to remember them as Paul has done, that church in Colossae, that they might be strengthened and encouraged. And not only that, in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints. I make note on that screen of some other passages that remind us that this sentiment that Paul shared to the church in Colossae was also one he shared with other congregations. To the church in Thessalonica, he remembered them in his prayers, like Thessalonians 1, verse 3. To that church in Ephesus, in the congregations that are located to her surrounding, he remembered them. Wouldn't it be interesting to listen to one of Paul's prayers as he named one by one these congregations and the individuals whom he knew in them? and prayed for their strength and encouragement, their faith and their love, we would this be entirely right to do the same, to specifically remember other congregations that they might be well and that they might prosper. I make note of that fact because in verse number 4, we can see something interesting about that which Paul mentions. He first did not mention anything other than the fact of their love, the fact of their faith and the fact in verse 5 of their hope. That's particularly enticing, isn't it? For in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, what are the three greatest things? Faith, hope, and charity. And yet those are the very three things of which Paul makes mention as he thought so kindly about these Colossian brethren. Notice that faith is ever so vital. For without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, Hebrews 11, 6. That element of faith is also addressed in these passages and made mention of in John 13, 34. Where there the second is mentioned, namely that of love. 
Jesus said that we ought to love one another. In John 15, 12, even as he had loved us. But not only that, for it would be by that mechanism that others would know that we were his disciples. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. That's all the more significant when the Colossian church is complimented in verse 4 for the love that they had to all the saints. Not only did Paul have a love for them due to their kindness in Christianity, but this church in Colossae was a loving congregation, it would appear, as they exhibited that love even to sister congregations and those in the surrounding areas. We know that as, as this chapter, as this book closes, there was, of course, a congregation in Laodicea. Could it be that this congregation frequently prayed for the one in Laodicea? There seems to be the case. There was a congregation in Hierapolis. Was it the case? This congregation helped to plant that. The scriptures do not give us that information in full, but it certainly may have been. Those thoughts challenge us to come to verse number 5. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. I make note of that fact because as we consider that hope, where was that laid up? And what does that hope entail? Is it the case, as some would lead us to believe today, that the grandest hope of all Christianity rests on earth? That there shall come a time when there will be a glorified earth fixed up in absolute utopian purity and awaiting the absolute fulfillment of all that is of Christ? The New Testament says nothing about that. In fact, the New Testament teaches us this earth is going to be burned up, Second. Peter 3, verses 9 and 10. In the greatest of all conflagrations that this earth shall ever face, is it any wonder then Paul says, our hope is not laid up on earth, it is laid up in heaven. And there's not a premillennialist on earth that can do away with the things the Apostle Paul teaches here. Isn't it amazing that he says the hope laid up for you in heaven? That teaching wasn't unique, of course, to Paul. What was it that Peter affirmed in 2 Peter, or rather 1 Peter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5? He even went so far as to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, by finishing that verse, he talked about the character of what God has made available to us through Christ's resurrection. Specifically, that there is a home in heaven reserved for you. Notice that where is it? It's in heaven. It's a place that's undefiled, absolutely perfect in every regard, but it resides in heaven. Paul noted then that the hope of all Christians ultimately rests in heaven. We understand there are many things for which we might hope. We enjoy the hope of good health, the hope of faithful children, the hope of a wonderful working congregation and the good that's accomplished through it. But without question, the greatest of all zeniths of hope is the ultimate residence of my spirit and yours one day in heaven. In the Ephesian letter, chapter 4, how many hopes are there ultimately? One. Just as surely as there is one body and one spirit, he said there's one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That one hope, Paul says, resides. We look forward to being in that place as we've learned and studied even in lessons this morning. To notice verse number 5 from a different angle. It's a fascinating thing to observe how it closes. Whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. 
In what way had the Colossians heard about this hope and come to apply it realistically to themselves? It was in no other mechanism than the word of the truth of the gospel. There is no substitute for the words contained in that gospel. It is the precious power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. It is that very thing that Paul claimed himself of necessity to preach, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. And thus, that hope of the gospel. You and I have it still. It has been vouchsafed to us by virtue of the word of truth of the gospel. Oh, how wonderful that word has been. May we again not forget it as we learn this morning, but have an everlasting memorial of the words of the truth of the gospel. We remember the very text of John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth, thy word is true. If we appreciate that fact, and thus base our life on that objective truth set forth in the gospel, we shall also be those much like the Colossians who have a hope laid up in heaven. Doesn't that bring a smile to our face? Doesn't that bring a gleam to our eye and appreciation to our being and ever a comfort the spirit that is us? These things hasten us to consider that which lies next. As you can see on that screen, I list some of the features and facts that we might also know. For beginning in verse number 6, which is coming to you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. It is the latter part of verse 6 that I chose as the title of the lesson, Knowing the Grace of God in Truth. If we might pause a moment and at least ponder, there is a significant amount of difficult and false teaching as it relates to the grace of God. There are some who, in fact, are more than happy to say that God's grace is better felt than told. It is something that is somewhat ethereal, floating around in the atmosphere and difficult to describe. Such is not true. Paul says it's possible to know God's grace. It is not something that's better felt than told, is it? As revealed in the New Testament, Paul expressly told Timothy the grace of God is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. Furthermore, Paul himself telling those Ephesian elders in Acts 20 described the fact that God's grace has come to you. It was not a subjective thing. It is objective, explained fully, and defined absolutely in the beautiful words of the truth of the gospel. Those who would attempt thus to teach us that there's something ethereal, something that's difficult and incorporeal about the grace of God are misleading us. They are not speaking that which is of truth. God's grace, he says, here can be known and it is found in the truth which is in the gospel. When you and I open the 27 books of the New Testament and allow those words to penetrate our mind, we can use them to thus direct our life and guide it in such a way that will harmonize with the free gift of God's grace and in the compliance of our obedience will give us all the spiritual blessings that are identified therein. God did not intend it to be that difficult. We are saved by grace through faith. The essentiality of grace cannot be set aside, but however, it can also be misconstrued. The grace of God seen in this verse. Paul continues onward to explain it in verse 7 in this way. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. The wonderful work of that man named Epaphras. He is mentioned on a few occasions in the New Testament, 
and in each instance he is highly complimented as one who was a devoted servant to Jesus. Could the same be said for you and me? Could it be stated on my tomb rock or yours that he or she was a dedicated fellow servant and a faithful minister of God? We certainly should live so that that could be the case, wouldn't we? And indeed, Paul compliments Epaphras in that very way. The comments of verses 7 and 8 remind us that Paul was blessed to have some faithful and friendly companions who were Christians. Those whom he so often compliments, such as this man named Epaphras, another named Epaphroditus, yet another named Onesiphorus, those others found in various of the letters, such as Philippians or in the, in the letters to Timothy, remind us of the grandeur and the encouragement that we can find in fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus. Isn't it amazing that someone who is such a dear fellow saint can share a smile, a word of compliment, an encouragement that will aid you or me over a difficulty which perhaps no one else is able even to know. But they know us well enough to know we're hurting or know us well enough to know that there's opportune time for rejoicing and they can share exactly what's needed to help us through what may be a difficult time or to celebrate in a proper and appropriate fashion. Regardless of those things, Paul spoke highly of Epaphras, calling him a dear fellow servant who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. We can be thankful for faithful ministers of Christ. And might we know that that isn't necessarily only referring to a preacher. All of us, in a sense, are faithful ministers who strive faithfully and with devotion to the cause of Jesus. Now, certainly there are those that are called preachers who may stand behind a pulpit and deliver didactic discourses about the truth of the gospel. But each of us can be a fellow servant in the sense that we strive for the mastery of the gospel and strive to share forth the things found therein. Verse number 8, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras had come from Colossae and now was with Paul and at some point shared with him what was happening in Colossae and apparently the difficulties that these false teachers had brought. Paul wrote this letter in response in an attempt to rebuke the character of the false teaching and set things in order so that they could again be a faithful congregation to the cause of Jesus. These comments about Epaphras bring us to verse number 9. As we consider that, I would urge you to note some of these comments. As we read verse number 9, let us read through verse number 12. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you might walk worthy of the good Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering the joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. It is not difficult to appreciate just from the reading of those four verses that Paul was greatly desirous of an increased knowledge on the part of the Colossians. Might we remember these false teachers had infiltrated their minds and had brought them to understand or at least to perceive things that were not gospel truth. Paul prayed that their knowledge might be increased. 
isn't it still the same today that with our knowledge, if it is not at its height and if we not are of desire for it to grow, it's easy if we're stagnant for someone to mislead us. It can be far easier if we aren't on fire for the Lord and if we are too calm and indifferent for a false teacher to lead us astray. Paul wanted their knowledge to be returned to that which is of truth and that it might flourish and increase and grow. May we, of course, desire the same for ourselves and for our congregation and for other congregations too. Verse 9, Since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for it. We might wonder, what did Paul hear? Notice the statement follows the very words when Epaphras came to him. Perhaps Epaphras described a congregation who was greatly beset by troubling faults of what these false teachers were now teaching, corrupting their ideas of sanctification and trying to burden them with the law of Moses again. Paul said, we haven't stopped praying for you. Paul, what did you pray? Verse 9, that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. They needed greater spiritual understanding to return and be restored to a true and powerfully strong congregation that they had been in days past. Paul prayed for that. Is it any wonder that you and I today can be so saddened when we hear of congregations who have made decisions to deviate from the truth, to step off into that which is not the doctrine of Christ, 2 John 9, 10, and 11. It is not a light thing. It's troubling. It troubled Paul to the point he prayed ceaselessly for this congregation. fact is, might we notice that knowledge is important. It never ceases to be a sad thought when there are those who will tell us it matters far more what you feel than what you know. We can't sidestep the importance of emotion in terms of zeal for that which God demands. But it's also true that it is important what one knows. Is it any wonder the Christian graces that Peter described in 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 5? He said, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. You and I must know the truth of this gospel, implement it in our lives, and seek to share it with others. It matters what you know. After all, there was a time that Jesus will speak of some and say, I never knew you. It didn't matter that they thought they knew him. They really didn't. Isn't it amazing that we are reminded time and again of the significance of knowledge? In this particular text before us, verse number 10, Paul goes on to say this that ye might walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's that word knowledge again, that they were to increase in that knowledge. But prior to that, he notes that they should walk in a way that's worthy and pleasing unto God. That certainly is our desire today. That pleasing and worthy walk is found as one is fruitful in every good work. We're commanded to bring forth good fruits unto God, aren't we? We read that in Romans 7, verse 4. We also notice in the, word, in the letter to Titus, Paul even made reference to the same, that ours might also learn to bring forth good works, Titus 3, 14. When you and I then do that which is commanded, we shall bring forth good fruits and good works unto the cause of God. Those good fruits redound unto the strength mentioned in verse 11 strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. Might we note the strength does not come from ourselves. 
nor did it come to the Colossians from themselves. This kind of strength is not sufficient to overcome the devil. But when we are strengthened with the power of God, and his word manifests itself through us, we rely on the strength of Jesus, not on our own strength. That, of course, must be coupled with patience and long-suffering, a degree of understanding that the will of God must be done, and his timetable is not ours. One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, Second Peter 3 eight. The recognition of those factors quickly leads to verse number 12 yet again. That joy that we experience in Jesus is a joy that transcends the difficulties of this life. A joy in which even when burdened with great difficulties, we know the Lord is with us and we have the sustenance and perseverance to overcome. Those things are that which Paul knew well. He was in prison when he wrote this letter and yet he still could speak of a joyfulness that not only he, but the church in Colossae was able to share. That sense of calmness finishes our lesson for this evening with verse number 12. Again, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. Oh, the wonder. Oh, the power of that which Paul speaks. Doesn't it remind us of the things in Romans 8, verse 18, for example, when there he was able to speak about the character of what awaits us is far greater than anything that we may experience here. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. Those words Paul lived out, and he encouraged the Colossians to do the same, understanding that just like those to whom the revelation is written, God's tomorrow is brighter than our today, and ever shall it be. These things of the first 12 verses have prepared us to look at the preeminence set forth in regard to Jesus, and we shall do that next Lord's Day evening, be it the will of God. For he gets into the opening section of the heart of his letter and sets forth the preeminence of Jesus on that occasion. But might we summarize our lesson this evening? We have briefly looked at the background to the book of Colossians. We came to understand that the grace of God is known through the truth of the gospel, and it is not left to self-subjective appreciation. It is found in Jesus, and it is true. And finally, we came to understand that Paul's desire for this church was that they should increase in knowledge, walk worthy and pleasing unto God, and prepare themselves again to know the marvelous truth of what it means to be a faithful congregation. This evening, can we not be thankful for the Pippin congregation, all that it has stood for and all that, can, that it continues to be? But may we also strive to ever be even stronger than we are now, not only numerically, but in the spiritual understanding and wisdom mentioned in verses 10 and 11. It could be deceiving that there is one or more within the sound of my voice, within the confines of this structure, that is not a Christian. Friend, you're living dangerously, for we do not know when the Savior will return, and we do not know even when our own demise, our own death will be. Are you prepared to meet the Lord in judgment? Are you prepared to stand and give defense and reckoning for the character of your life? There shall be no second opportunities. If you are prepared, let tonight be the night to make yourself ready. As we shall see in the next lesson, the preeminence of Jesus means he's head of the church, and we must then bow in submission to him. Are you a member of his church? He himself said that you must believe in him as the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must also, in regard to that belief, though, go further, Mark 16, 16, as you repent of your sins, confess his wonderful name as the only Son of God, and be 
immersed for the forgiveness of sin. If you have not done those things, let tonight be the night. If you have, if you have at one time known the grace of God through the gospel, but you've allowed Satan to remove the grandeur and hope from you, for you now live more as a child of the devil than as a child of God, come back to the right family. Separate yourself from the devil's family. Become a member again of God's family by allowing the blood of Jesus to forgive you from sin. We could pray for you. In fact, the scriptures encourage us to do that. We'd be happy to do it. If any of either of those is the need of your life tonight, will you not let that be known in a public way? Even now, while together we stand and while we sing.